This is Matt Falsinelli from thedrop.com, and you're listening to Rebel Radio. Fuck you, Josh. <laughs> What's up? This is Rebel Radio. What up, what up? This is DJ Newmark. This is Peanut Butter Wolf. It's your boy. It's okay. Keep checking out Rebel Radio. Rebel Radio. This is Rebel Radio. We're in the place right here. Uh? Rebel Radio is going down. What did you say? Rebel Radio? Oh, wait. Let's do it again. Rebel Radio. What's up, Rebels? Welcome back to Rebel Radio, the weekly show where I bring you the Rebels who are shaping our culture. I'm your host, Josh Levine. This week, I sit with Matt Falsinelli. He's the founder CEO of TheDrop.com. If you're not familiar with The Drop, go check it out. It's a streetwear marketplace featuring hundreds of brands, uh, sneakers, clothing, accessories. Get all your drip. Uh, do your Christmas shopping there. Matt's got uh, an amazing story about building, you know, a business that's hyper relevant to what's going on right now in culture, in commerce, um, really pushing the envelope uh, and building, I think, an incredible business. He's got some great stories about storytelling um, and uh, what that means in a modern context and the importance of storytelling to a brand. He, we talk a little bit about who does it right and who doesn't. Um, the short answer is no product sells itself. That's an outdated uh, idea. Maybe it worked at one time, I don't know, but it certainly doesn't work today. Um, and he also gives us some insight into the speed of, of commerce. Uh, you know, the, the uh, spoiler is that most brands put out product way too slowly. Um, that speed is only increasing and there's some really smart ones that are playing the game correctly. So learn everything there is to know about e-commerce or learn a little bit about e-commerce uh, as we get into it with Matt Falsinelli. You're probably never not fundraising, right? Is that? Yeah, I hate it. Honestly, you know, one of uh, my mentors, um, he he recommended early on to have a co-founder mm -hmm. because you're gonna need somebody to to really run the, the ops and somebody to, to raise the money and sure so yeah i don't know if i'd do it different though be honest it's uh it's kind of one of those um you know it's all part of building your company you right. know if, yeah it, i, I kind of like it better because even running the company uh you know, even in a meeting with investors, you get to know the investors and, mm -hmm. you know, there's people that want to write checks that you maybe don't want involved in your company and, sure. and vice versa. So it's, I, I kind of like, you know, keeping my finger on the, on the pulse of, of all that. Yeah, of course. I mean, it seems like, you know, I mean, we can, we can dig into it, but it seems like there's, there's just so many things that go wrong they can go wrong in the course of trying to build <laughs> a business that, it, you know, it's amazing when it, when it does happen. Yeah. It's uh, yeah. There, I mean, there's so many things that, you know, you can do all the projections and make them look as pretty and, and up to the right, you mm -hmm. know, all you want, but there's, there's things that you just can't foresee uh, consumer trends shift, which is kind of the core of our model anyway, but economic trends shift, um, political, influences yeah. to economy yeah, yeah sure uh, but you but you roll with it man you roll with it you know any curveball thrown your way you, you you have to come out even better on the other end yeah well i want to dig into some of that with you um 
And I appreciate you making time to do this, man. I've been following uh, since, you know, since you launched this business or the one yeah. before that that became this business. And uh, <laughs> you know, it's been a great journey to watch. And so I'm excited to kind of dig in with you on it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, let's maybe take a step back and start at the beginning. Because um, I know before this, you were at Backcountry, mm -hmm. right? And, and had the e-commerce background. Is that, did you know growing up that you were going to work in fashion? Was that kind of where your head was at? I liked fashion because I, I couldn't afford it. <laughs> As a kid, you know, we, you know, we were probably, you know, lower middle class, I think economically, we didn't know that, but looking back, it's probably sure. where we were. Um, but, uh, you know, couldn't afford, you know, the name brand stuff and, mm -hmm. you know, so it makes you want it more. Right. And, uh, and so I always, you know, and I spent a lot of time growing up in malls. Yeah. You know, I, I go to mall at least once a week, walk around, you know, see what's new every week. And, and back then, not a lot of things changed week to week like yeah. they do today. But um, no, I definitely uh, I, I ha always liked fashion from an early age. Um, and then, you know, in terms of working in fashion, no, I actually wanted to work in pro baseball. Oh, wow. uh, I was a baseball player, you know, I, I um, had hopes and dreams of playing college ball and and i played a little bit of college ball but i uh, got hurt my end end of high school career and that pretty much was the end of any uh, hope or dream in that world but mm -hmm. i wanted to work on the business side of baseball so i went to school for um for spanish and international business because i knew baseball back in the you know the late 90s was starting to open up uh camps and offices and things like that in south america central america and and um and that's where a lot of talent was coming from. So, yeah, I, I actually did a, a semester abroad in Mexico and ended up going back after I graduated for about a year and change. Oh, wow. But uh, in Mazatlan, Mexico, and and uh, I worked for they have a, a winter league baseball team in the Mexican winter league, and I actually worked for that. That was kind of my first gig out of college. Nice. And so I I, I used to be fluent in Spanish, I'm a little rusty now, but. Uh, but yeah, I would translate for the American players on the team and, and, uh, and, you know, did a little PR, helped them build their first website. This is oh, 90, cool. 98. And so wow. it was literally learning the code, yeah. <laughs> hand code sites before right, Dreamweaver right. even. And, uh, and so that was good though. That was, uh, you know, and that's where I kind of really started learning a little bit more of that, you know, there's life outside of the U.S., mm -hmm. especially the small town where I came from and small town where I went to college. And it's like, OK, there's a bigger world out here. So I think that's where I got, you know, more of the taste for international and uh, and and it's certainly a love for Latin culture. Um, it's uh, it's an amazing culture, very similar to the Italian culture I grew up around. So mm -hmm. I think there was a lot of kinship there. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, the food is amazing. Yeah, of course. <laughs> but but um but yeah, yeah, I started out in Mexico and, and, uh, and then when I, you know, was leaving there, I, I, I wanted to move to a city in where there was Latin culture. I, I loved it that much. Uh, I still do. So I was looking at Miami and San Diego and ended up landing in San Diego. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in San Diego, I caught on with a, with a kind of a, a company from the dot-com days that endured all that, all that, uh, you know, um, you know, the dot-com bust and all that, but the a company called website story. Okay. And they, they pioneered what is now known as modern day web analytics. And so, um, won't go, won't geek out on the technology too much, but, uh, uh, easily can, but basically, you know, what, what, you know, they were doing 
Google Analytics and then some before Google Analytics and um, more of an enterprise technology. And we end up getting acquired and acquired again. And it's now really the core tech piece of the Adobe uh, digital suite of products. So, okay. um, but being there, you know, pre-IPO and then going through an IPO and acquiring two companies. And I mean, this was literally 2002 to 2008. And, uh, and it really was the dot-com. It was a wild west of the internet days. And, you know, being on the data side of the internet, I mean, think about everybody just started talking about data the last couple of years. Sure. I mean, we were pushing the value of data in 2002, you know, and, and it's kind of interesting, you know, the data, we had some really big wins back then. I remember Best Buy was looking to redesign their stores, right? Before they became, everything was white and blue and yellow highlights and bright and open, mm -hmm. you know, they didn't, that wasn't always Best Buy, but they did a redesign and they used the data from their website that we were analyzing and, and collecting for them to understand how people behaved online. And it was one of the first cases I can remember of a multi-channel retailer using web data to power how they laid out their new store format mm -hmm. across the country. And, uh, you know, people that buy big screen TVs also like video games and, you know, things like that. So I really developed a passion around data and I, my niche fell more in the e-commerce side. We worked with media companies like ESPN and, and uh, you know, financial companies that did a lot of lead generation, but I really, really loved e-commerce and specifically fashion. So my early passion for fashion ended up coming back into play when I was in the analytics world. And, you know, we worked with uh, everybody from, uh, you know, Dr. J's in the early days mm -hmm. to uh, Guest Clothing, Wet Seal, R&B in their heyday, um, backcountry when they were less than 20 people in a garage, you know, in Heber, yeah. <laughs> a little town that backside of Deer Valley, uh, Utah. But, uh, and so we, we worked with a lot of them and, and backcountry was actually one of our first e-commerce clients and, and we, they were our beta clients. So we got to show their live data around, you know, people traversing their websites and what people are searching for and, and responses to marketing campaigns. And what does that lead to? What do people look at versus what they buy? And so I looked at backcountry's data every day for mm -hmm. six, about six years. And, um, and when I, when I uh, went there as a direct employee, <laughs> I feel like I knew more about the history of the company because I knew how they evolved from a data perspective and, sure. and what, you know, improvements they made to their business that affected conversion rates and sales and, you know, all that good stuff. So it was, uh, it was an interesting, it was an interesting uh, way to get into the e-commerce world coming from the data side, super valuable because when you're looking at data, you know, you're looking at marketing, you're looking at usability on the site, you're looking at merchandising data. I mean, you really start understanding um, almost every aspect of an online business and where the weak points are and, and where the opportunities are and, and where the strengths are and, and, uh, and you know, what levers you can turn to maybe increase traffic and kill conversion a little bit, but just to get more traffic or increase sales, you know, maybe lower your traffic and, and focus on more targeted audiences. So you, you learn a lot about that. Um, yeah, I left there, went to, to San Diego, you know, the chain of shops around San Diego County. No, uh uh about i mean there were 10 shops then i think they're much more now okay uh, a 40 year old chain of surf and skate retailers um 
you know, Dave Nash is, is really kind of a, uh, I think a pioneer on the, on the niche retail side of the action sports world. Mm-hmm. And, um, and, you know, when I met him, they, uh, you know, they had a website and they had really uh, amazing relationships with, you know, personal relationships with the Bob Hurley's and the Bob McKnight's of the world. And, and, but yet they're, they didn't really have e-commerce. I was like, wow, you guys have great selection. You get the exclusives a couple of weeks in advance. Um, you have all the right brands and all the right relationships, no e-commerce. And so um, went there for a year to help them launch, which was really, really educational for me because I knew the front end of, of e-commerce, marketing, mm-hmm. analytics. Um, but it helped me learn kind of the back end logistics, customer service, payment processing and fraud, um, which is a, a really easy way to, to lose a lot of money, if not done right in the sure, e-commerce sure. world. Yeah. <laughs> and so- uh you, well, you, you brought up a couple of really interesting things that I don't want to uh, overlook. Yep. Um, and one is, you know, talking about just as a teenager at the mall, right? And I think, you know, now we have a different understanding of malls or, or malls have changed their place in American culture, right? But, you know, the 80s and 90s was like the heyday of like teenagers just hanging out there. They worked at the mall. They went to eat. They went to the movies. Sometimes you'd shop. Sometimes you wouldn't. But it was a place where people you know, it was, it was like where most of America, you know, maybe outside of the biggest cities really went to congregate and hang out and spend your, your teenage years. Right. Yeah. Um, Don't forget the arcade. Yeah. The arcade for sure. Early, you know, early like forms of gaming. The arcade and the food court. Right. And then, uh, and then, you know, and then some shopping along the way, but um, that's different than the world we li- live in today. Right. Forget about COVID, but just, you know, that doesn't exist as, as far as the, this kind of central hub for youth culture, you know, and these exchanges to happen. Um, yeah, yeah, it really, I mean, I look at it, you know, coming from a small town and having to drive, you know, 25, 30 minutes to the closest mall and then going into a store um, and, and that's where you learned you know, you learned what was cool and what wasn't cool sure. back then, yeah. you know, whether, you know, what brands are cool, what, who, what people are cool, right? As a young, you know, when you're, I think probably under 18 or who knows, under 20, like you're, you, you want to know, you know, we're, we're very much a, a tribe society, right? You want to, you want to fit in, you want to, you want to know who the leaders are and that boils down to fashion and, and, you know, sports and, yeah. and influence early stages of influencers back then. So that you learned all that at the stores, at the shops, you know, whether you went into your local sneaker shop or local skate shop or went to a mall and went to more of a, you know, you know, chain shop, like that's where you learned what was cool. And that's where you met people that also were interested in those things and say so very communal, um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's nostalgic, you know, it's, it's a, such a cool and great memories. Um, they just evolve. There's different formats of that online and bringing communities together, obviously and social networks and all that good stuff. Let me talk to you about Fiverr. If you're like most companies, 2020 has completely changed the way you do business. It's more important than ever to have a strong digital presence and having access to the right resources is essential, especially during these times of uncertainty, but frankly, all the time. That's what that's what business is about. And getting the, t- the right talent can be time consuming, frustrating, expensive. 
it's difficult, but it's, it's important. So we use Fiverr. It's an online marketplace connecting businesses with freelancers that offer hundreds of digital services, graphic design, copywriting, film editing, uh, pretty much anything you can think of that can be done digitally. There's, there's people on Fiverr that do it right. Um, we're using Fiverr right now to get some help with, with e-commerce, with, um, with some you know, design needs, uh, and it, it, it's great. There's a global network of on-demand freelance talent uh, that can, you know, we can pull in for, for a project. It's easy to find what we're looking for instantly. You can customize your search by price, by deadline. You can check reviews. It takes a lot of the guessing out of hiring uh, freelancers, which for anybody that's done that knows how frustrating that can be. Uh, the pricing is always project-based, so you know what you're paying. And Fiverr has great 24-7 customer service. You can reach out with questions anytime. So check out Fiverr.com and receive 10% off your first order by using my code REBELRADIO. Find all the digital services you need at one place at F-I-V-E-R-R.com, code REBELRADIO. Again, that's Fiverr.com, code REBELRADIO. And then, you know, you talked about the San Diego shops and I think, you know, all over, you know, certainly Southern California, right, where the home of action sports and skate and surf and, you know, so much about that community is like, you know, these influential shops who had relationships with the athletes or the brand owners, you know, the designers, and it was this little network. Right. And, and, you know, I got to know a bunch of those people at, at ASR um, <laughs> or, you know, uh, uh, you know, project over the years. Right. But you'd have this community that, you know, people would walk into the stores, you know, have those relationships. They'd meet at the trade shows. They'd meet, you know, at the beaches, you know, wherever. Right. And, you know, that's become uh, this trendsetter for the for the whole world. Right that uh you know street surf and skate is really what's driving a lot of fashion trends globally now and it comes out of this really you know small pocket of the world for the most part um and so you know i wonder you know those two things you think about the consumer culture at the malls the sort of creator culture you know um and then, as you said, like those things happen differently now in, in an online environment. But I wonder how, you know, how do you think about those uh, kind of not losing those sort of interactions or that sense of community as things become more global and more because, you know, you're so you have the store of the drop and you're selling a bunch of brands that presumably, you know, you've never met the founders or some you have and some you haven't or I don't know. Um, but, you know, people can just click some stuff and upload and they're on your site and like, it's a very different sort of environment. So I wonder if you if you think at all about the, the role of that type of community uh, and what, what that does today. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, um, you know, part of our, our, our vision and our goal for the drop is to be that place where, you know, you can come in and find, you know, the, the vans or Adidas you're looking for, but you're going to discover, you know, uh, brands like Clearweather uh, or brands like, um, uh, you know, Reason or even the newer generation uh, like Staple, 
you know, talking to, to Jeff Staple the other day, and he, he made a great point. He's like, man, I need to figure out how to be cool to, you know, a million 15 year olds every right. year. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, 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 you know, Staples been around, but, you know, we'll do posts on social and we try to do storytelling. I, I really want to be for the drop. I want it to be a storytelling platform because, you know, going back to the communal aspect of those shops growing up, it was a lot of storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, and those stories are still out there in abundance. Um, and most brands aren't even telling their own stories. They're just putting out product that has a story, but they're not telling the story. That's where Jeff and I really um, found a common denominator. You know, I think we share uh, a lot of ideas and, and beliefs around, you know, with a, a very uh, disloyal consumer, the young millennials, Gen Z, not being very brand loyal at all, being very influencer driven. You know, how do you start a brand? How do you build a brand? How do you build loyalty to your brand? And you could trace a lot of ideas that back to storytelling, you know, create that emotional connection to a brand or a collection or a collab, that emotional connection, you know, the more emotion you can inject, the, the, the more you're going to sell. So um, how do you, how do you define storytelling in this context? What, what does it mean? It could be, you know, it, it could be, um, Man, it could be everything from on a, on the e- the easiest answer on the collab side, right? So you're doing a, a sneaker collab with uh, with an artist, and maybe it's an artist nobody's ever heard of. Tell the story of that artist. How did they get started? Where do they come from? Mm-hmm. Why are you doing this collab with them? Um, you know, it just there's so much there's so much juicy parts there to put out. And once you tell those stories to people, people are like, shit, somebody's going to say, man, that's just like me or man, that's what I want to do. Or wow. I can really relate to the struggle of that artist. Yeah. And, and you know, and it's what Nike does. They do a lot of great collabs with a lot of sometimes artists you've never heard of, you know, or at least they're not mainstream enough for the mass market to know of. Mm-hmm. And it helps keep a, a huge brand like Nike more relevant to the, to the younger consumer. Um, one way they do it, <laughs> one of the ways they do it. Sure. But uh, it, the stories could be around technology, you know, it could be around fabrics, it could be um, around the designer, you know, this is an up and coming designer who's designing this micro collection for this brand as a one-off and what's the story behind the designer and where they inspired from. Uh, there's so many, there's so many tidbits out there. Um, yeah, I, I, I had a, I met a guy at a party a year or two ago. It was a sneaker launch party in LA, and he started telling me about uh, his brand, and he told me this really rich story. And I won't go into it because it's a long story, and and he's no longer on the drop <laughs> because he kind of just felt like uh, I don't know. Honestly, I don't, I don't think he's focusing too hard on his brand. Uh, but anyway, he tells this amazing story. And I said, look, man, and he didn't even tell me what his product was. He just told me, like, I have a brand. And I said, oh, what's the story behind the brand? I didn't even ask him what the products were. I didn't care yet. And he told me this amazing story. And I'm like, I don't care if you're selling dog dishes or T-shirts tomorrow morning. As long as that story is on your website, I will go buy something. And uh, he's like, I'll tell you right now, it's not on the website. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? That's like, that is your asset, that story that you build the brand off of and it kills me to this day. It's not on his website, you know, and it's like, that was two years ago at least. And so, you know, and, and Jeff talks about this a lot. He talks about it publicly in, in, in the business of hype and, mm-hmm. you know, it, the, it's the stories 
that really create the emotional connection to a brand. Um, and then the frequency of storytelling is the other piece of that formula. You know, it's one thing to have a good story, but if you have this consumer that's super ADD and, you know, they're, you know, influencer wears brand A today, they want brand A, influencer wants brand B tomorrow, they, right. they want brand B. And so, you know, it's, it's a very uh, real time dynamic world. And, you know, how do you, how do you play in that? And you have to, you know, that's why you're seeing brands dropping micro collections every 15 to 30 days is to keep that engagement. Um, if they can bring that storytelling piece in, then you're going to see, you know, you're going to see the emergence of, of a few from, from the rest. Um, so how do, how do you balance that with, cause I get it right. Like, and, and, you know, as a consumer, forget about, you know, what I think I know about marketing, but as a consumer, like if I, you know, if I'm on a, unless a product is solving a very specific problem for me, I kind of want to know why it exists. Right. And, you know, I see that with Nike and I think they do a better job than most, but even mm -hmm. still they'll have some colorway or some, you know, new fabric or whatever. And when they don't explain anything about it and it's just like, here's a different option you can buy. Like I sort of like, not that I, I might still buy it if I like it, but it's much more, I'm, I'm aware of the fact that it's much more subjective to that color or that fabric catch my eye as opposed to like giving me something I can really buy into. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I totally, I get that, you know, on the other side, fashion is the ultimate trend business. As you said, the trends change faster than others and the big fashion houses, like that's all they do is study trends. They, you know, they, they send people out to do color studies and to watch, you know, what's emerging around the world and, you know, uh, and they just try to stay on top of it. Right. Yeah. And so I wonder how you balance those two things with one, you know, what's the story behind the product and two, we're doing turquoise right now because everyone's doing turquoise and like, that's just the thing. And we have to kind of keep up with it. Yeah. It, it's, um, it, it's not the easiest time to be a brand. It's probably the, the hardest time in history to be a brand. Mm -hmm. Um, I've had, we have investors that asked, well, at what point do you launch house brands? You build all this traffic, you build this audience, you build right. this, this repeat customer loyalty to the drop. Um, when do you start, you know, developing brands of your own, you know, obviously to make bigger margins and all that. And I said, look, man, it's a whole different world yeah. that I personally don't want to play in. Um, I'd rather invest in brands mm -hmm. or incubate brands. Mm -hmm. um, but to be a brand and to, um, either follow trends or be proactive and, and set trends. Um, th that's, uh, that's a whole nother animal. And yeah, maybe I'd like to tackle that in a separate venture in the future, but right now that, that, uh, that is, um, not something I, I, uh, I can bring on top of the drop, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> but, sure. but, but it's, um, it, it goes back to agility for, if I was a brand, you know, agility in manufacturing, agility in design, um, agility in the influencers we work with at really, I think at the core of it is what's going to make or break a brand because mm. you can be a brand that adapts to trends. Um, you can be a brand that just does something off the charts that nobody else is doing. And there's chances that may come in trend and then you're the only person there, you know, well positioned. Um, but it's, it really comes down to agility, you know, um, 
design in shorter cycles, produce in shorter cycles, maybe work with more local manufacturing. It, it'll cost more, but you're making triple the margins when you're selling direct mm-hmm. versus, you know, previous wholesale models. So, mm-hmm. you know, local manufacturing um, becomes more of a viable option, um, which would be kind of cool if you saw a little bit more of that in the States. But, uh, but yeah, that agility is, um, is critical, you know, as we duck and move, you know, with different trends, you know, related to our business, a brand, you know, is really is looking at trends uh, more in the fashion sense and the influencer sense. I mean, I remember we launched the drop, uh, man, it was, we soft launched July of 17 and it was shortly after Kylie Jenner wore a Metallica concert t-shirt to Mm -hmm. Starbucks and for 14 to 30 days after, um, young girls wanted retro metal concert t-shirts, which nobody had. I mean, uh, Zoomies, Urban Outfitters, nobody had had them in stock. And and, and even the girls who wanted them didn't even know what a Metallica was. (laughs) And so, um, but we actually had a couple brands that had these these retro 80s metal versions of their branded tees. And, you know, we're a young company. We didn't have a lot of money to put into marketing just yet. And so we, you know, we put all put those out there as best we could and we started selling them. And so, you know, the brand needs to be agile or ahead of the curve. And for us, you know, our whole business model for the drop is around, you know, um, we have 300 plus brands plugged in 100 percent of their collections. We have 22, 23 boutiques plugged in, which bring us another 350 brands that we don't have directly. Mm-hmm. And for us, it becomes a merchandising and marketing game now. So if, if you know, Jay-Z wears yellow track pants to, to, uh, to you know, Staples Center, then boom, you know, yellow track pants are hot. People are looking for them. And, right. you know, the, the Zoomies, the Urbans, the, the big retailers have to order their stuff six to eight months in advance. And for us, we're like, boom, okay, we have 10 brands with yellow track pants. Mm-hmm. Let's put them into a landing page, adjust our marketing. Is there any stories we can tell related to these brands or products and then deploy marketing? We can do that almost in a half an hour if we wow. really wanted to. Amazing. And so, yeah. And so we, we see ourselves as kind of being that, that place to, you know, we're, you know, we help brands be agile in that you know, we, we can, as soon as that trend hits, we can push that brand right away where that brand may not be able to. Most brands today don't, are not very digitally savvy when it comes to marketing. Yeah. Uh, we serve that purpose for a lot of them and we do it more efficiently than they will for the next two or three years as they build their teams. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we really serve a really strong purpose and a platform for them. Um, but also, um, you know, we, the data that we're extracting, um, one of our goals for 21 is to start bringing this real time data back to the brands, uh, on our, and, and shops on our store, on our platform. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, what is trending right now in, uh, New York versus LA. If you're, you know, if you are Nike and you want to know how is Nike SB trending against uh, skate shoes as a category in New York um, over the last week, months, quarters, um, you know, we'll we'll have that data. Uh, we have that data today, and this is data that I think will really help the bigger brands. And I know they were they're drooling over this data. They sure. told us as much. Um, but it'll help the younger brands too, because a lot of younger brands start out in a very focused category. You know, whether this brand's starting out in, you know, in backpacks, mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, you're uh, you're a Florida-based brand, and you sell a lot of backpacks in New York. We also see tank tops trending in New York. Maybe throw a capsule of tank tops. Maybe match them with your backpacks. However, you want to do it. Mm-hmm. But 
that type of data, I feel we can then help the younger brands grow more strategically and efficiently. Um, And I think at the end of the day, the data and bringing the data back to the industry, helping them understand how to leverage the data, um, it's ultimately just going to help the industry grow, be be smarter, be more efficient, um, and then eventually get to global markets faster, which I think a lot of brands don't do before the end of their life as a brand. Sure, sure. Um, so just to close the loop on on the storytelling piece. <laughs> Sorry, uh, bit of a tangent. No, 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 I love it. And, and <laughs> there's so much here we can dig into. Uh, but I, I did want to just, um, who who does a great job of that with on your side or, or otherwise? Um, but who are the brands that really get storytelling? Um, let me think about that. Um, you know, obviously, you know, Staple does, a, they do a lot of, collaborations mm-hmm. um they sell out really fast so there's not a lot of there's not a big window to tell the story sure. um but they do a lot of interesting collabs and they have a lot of good stories to tell um i, I think Clearweather is an interesting one you know it, they have a really good product and they have uh, an incredible pedigree that you know the, the brubaker brothers uh, are um are, you know longtime sneaker designers both of them and um, there's a really great story to tell. Uh, I know I always tell it. Um, <laughs> I tell, you know, whenever somebody asks about, you know, what brands do, do well or what brands uh, are kind of executing the formula. And, and you know, I look at Clearweather is a good one because they, it's, there's a really good story around uh, the founders, um, why they created a brand, um, their whole mantra of being uh, less corporate, more independent. Mm-hmm. Um, using really good parts to their, their sneakers, you know, these Italian leathers and hairy suede. Um, it's a nice, it's a really good product and they shoot really nice imagery, mm. which is a key part. I think a lot of brands are, are missing at. So yeah. you, you can tell a story in a way you could tell a good story in a way, almost through the imagery, you know, how do you wear it? So a sneaker brand, do you want to just shoot a sneaker still? Okay. That looks cool. That probably works in some marketing campaigns. Do you want to put it on somebody and show how to wear it? What mm-hmm. pants do you wear? What clothes do you wear? What, how do you match it? Um, what style does that sneaker fit fashion wise? Um, then you're going to still sell a lot more sneakers. Um, when you actually show the customer how to wear it sure. with the entire outfit. And that's, that's another thing too. I feel like a lot of people that are siloed into specific categories, um, when they do imagery, they only take an image of that product instead mm-hmm. of showing it on model on person and, uh, and accessorized and matching with the entire outfit is, um, we've done a lot of AB testing and I could tell you, you know, putting a sneaker on a person who's well-dressed, you know, to match that sneaker to show the vibe of the brand. Yeah. You can sell, sell way more sneakers than, sure. than the sh- shooting a sneaker still. But, uh, yeah, Clearweather's a good one. Um, uh, I'm trying to think I'm like going through 300 brands in my yeah, head. Of course. Um, uh, reason reasons uh, reason does pretty well reason out of new york mm-hmm. um they drop a lot of products frequently um and doing more collabs right now they just uh, put one out with uh, uh the artist um uh the late artist basquiat mm. and uh some interesting things there um more stories to tell in reason i'd say is a brand we we've seen evolve you know from probably a brand that was creating cool product, a brand that's creating cool product and, and 
some interesting stories around the products. Uh, and so it's great to see that evolution, right? It gives you hope that the industry is, is evolving too. Um, yeah, there's a couple, a couple of those come to mind. That's great. Yo, if you're enjoying this one and you want to stick with the e-commerce theme, uh, let's go back in the Rebel Radio archives. Check out my interview with Josh Luber, the founder of StockX. StockX went public earlier this year. It's blown up um, as a place to buy and sell sneakers, uh, now handbags, watches, streetwear. Um, amazing business, amazing interview, I think. Uh, you might like it. Go check it out. So, uh, like I said, when we met, you were either just moving to Brazil or, or in, in Brazil. Um, yeah. And so, and I, I remember talking at the time about sort of why, so you went down there to launch the company that now became The Drop, right? If that's- Separate companies, yeah, separate, okay. separate focus, yeah. Fair enough. Um, but it but feels like the same sort of journey. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny when we went to Brazil. So, you know, uh, truth be told, we went down to build an acquisition target for backcountry. Got they it. were, they were owned by Liberty Media at the time. Liberty Media gave them pretty much an open checkbook to acquire uh, a good amount of business mm -hmm. and most likely globally because there just weren't acquisition targets um, that they were interested in in the States. And so um, I was like, well, uh, it sounds kind of interesting. And I was at Skull Candy for a minute. I was there for a year before I went to Brazil, after backcountry and before Brazil. I was at Skull Candy uh, helping with their D2C e-com, and, um, which is basically across the parking lot from backcountry uh, <laughs> okay. in, Park, in Park City, Utah. Yeah. And so, um, but uh, I ran into a friend of mine uh, at a trade show, an Adobe summit, I think. And he launched one of the first digital agencies in, in Sao Paulo back in 03. And he was like, Hey, you may want to look at Brazil. We're hitting our internet boom. This was like early 2012. He's like, we're hitting our internet boom. Nobody knows what they're doing. Huge market, middle-class just emerging with credit cards for the first time. Um, it's kind of a perfect storm. And you being a more data centric guy, you could come down here and, and, you know, uh, execute, more successfully than, than most people that are just learning it from scratch. Sure. And uh, I was like, well, that kind of sounds sexy, you know, go down there and build something, build an acquisition target for backcountry possibly. And so long story short, we went down there. We had a long-term vision of being a marketplace, but um, just, we never, never pulled it off. We, we had a buy inventory, mm -hmm. um, you know, at the time I, you know, before I went, I met with friends that were, you know, executives at you know, Billabong and Quicksilver and Hurley, Hurley and Nike and Adidas. And they said, man, go down now. We're, we're all trying to figure out Europe, but you get to Brazil. It's like the next frontier. So mm -hmm. we'll introduce you to our distributors, but distributors in Brazil, you know, they, they didn't want the extra inventory risk. Brazil's economy was peaking when ours were in recession. Right. And so when we get down there in 2012, their, their economy is on fire. And, you know, the you know, distributor pre-books their stuff. They get it shipped in from China or from the States. And then they distribute it. They get paid. They pay back the brand in the States. It's a very clean and semi-risk-free mm -hmm. model. Mm -hmm. And we're down there pitching them, like, take on extra inventory risk and sell direct and the economy is not always going to be great and you're going to want to sell direct and, you know, we can help. And they're like, you know, why would we want to take on that extra risk when we don't have to? Yeah. So 
we we ended up being just very vanilla ecom. We were surfing skate, which was more of a fit for for Brazil. Mm-hmm. Skate was really exploding uh, from 2012 to 2016 when we were down there. Um, if you think about Brazil, I mean, it's a country that soccer is by far the number one love of passion for everybody. Yeah. But in terms of sports, um, after after soccer, it now goes skateboarding and surfing. Oh wow! So there's no hockey, there's no baseball, there's no yeah. American football. There's you know there's there's none of that stuff. I mean, they have a pro basketball league, but it's not mm-hmm. wildly popular. I think pro volleyball might be pop, more popular than pro basketball in Brazil. But if you think about a country of 220 million people and it goes soccer skateboarding surf our obvious focus was on uh was on action sports sure. and um it was it was a i mean it was it was an education you yeah, know so that's what i want to that's what i'm wondering is what you know what did you learn first of all you know i i always am attracted to this idea of like launching anything in secondary markets um because i think you know, it sounds like in some ways certain things are harder, but other things are easier, right? And and America and you know L.A. and New York is like the most competitive markets on earth for m- most things, um, and so I always think like yeah, if you can, if you can work out the system where maybe the bar is a little bit lower, uh, then that's generally a good like. Does that square with your experience? You know, if I were called you tomorrow and said, man, I'm gonna launch this new company would you tell me like hey go do it in another country uh it it depends on the country and it depends on the business yeah um brazil uh you know we did so much research on the market obviously and uh one of the things we didn't come across until we were there was a list that forbes put out and it was the easiest countries to do business in Mm -hmm. and it ranked all countries Mm -hmm. And out of what is it, 230, 240 something countries, maybe 260 now, um, Brazil was 111th easiest country to do business in. Okay. So, one piece of information I probably would have valued before going there because we learned it the hard way. It, yeah. it is a, you know, in, in a, in a, you look at Brazil and it's like, man, they got everything. They got, they have people, they have food, they have yeah. no natural disasters. They they have gold and silver and iron. They have oil, five thousand miles of coastline, Caribbean style beaches. Like they, they literally have everything. But it's a very difficult country to do business in, um, and it comes down to culture. Really, it, it, they have a uh, their culture. Uh, they have a very strong culture of mis- of. Um, distrust mm-hmm. is the right word. They don't trust each other. They don't, I mean, it's, every, everybody feels everybody's trying to screw each other over. I mean, for the most part, I mean, especially in the business world, mm-hmm. um, it's, uh, and it makes negotiations extremely difficult and borderline impossible in a lot of ways. Um, and so to, to your point, you know, some things are easier, some things, you know, are, are not as easy, you know, you know, maybe, you know, uh, you pay a little extra for something and it gets done faster. Um, and that's kind of one of the, the things that you, you maybe wouldn't be so apt to do in, in the United States, sure. which we never did for the record. Um, cause it just leads to a downward spiral and yeah, yeah, you don't want to do that. Um, but not playing that game, things are a lot slower in terms of growing business and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, raising money. I mean, it, it's a, it's tough because nobody knew Brazil. A lot of people still don't know Brazil. You right. know, there was a lot of VC money that went down there and 
from 2010 to 2012 and no companies were getting acquired. And, you know, it's, it's, it was such a great ex- education because you learn like countries like Brazil as a business, you get taxed on the top line. Mm-hmm. You don't get taxed on the bottom line. Right. So if, you, if you break even, it's not like in the States where it's like, well, we don't pay taxes because we broke even right. now, down there you get taxed on the top line. So you could be doing 10 million a year and, uh, and break even, and you still have to pay, you know, wow, to like 40% on that wow. 10 million. That's crazy. Where's that, you know, where's that come from? You, sure. you broke even, you don't have the money in the bank. It, it's tough. It's a tough market. Very opportunistic market. I think Brazil has an amazing future. Uh, very difficult. So what country. Do you think a lot of countries are like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, that is part of why so much launches out of the U.S. is because we're a business friendly, we're entrepreneur friendly environment compared to a lot of places. A lot of Brazilian entrepreneurs who have a great idea leave and take that and start the idea in the States. Mm. Early guys at Instagram, WhatsApp, even, you know, Saverine at Facebook, all Brazilian. Oh, wow. Um, and that's just a few. There's a, yeah. Interesting. Uh, Brex, if you heard of Brex, which is kind of a, a kind of a funding tool for, for early stage e-commerce companies, no, uh, no. Brazilian founder, uh, there's a lot of savvy entrepreneurs out of Brazil, but they do come to the States to, to really um for it to to take off cool yeah so are are there a couple big lessons you learned from that experience that you brought back with you to to launch the drop yeah i I think going back to the beginning of our conversation or or before we got started i mean funding you know it's it never stops um it's easier to raise money when you don't need it right than when you absolutely need it yeah um because you know you just, you know, your leverage is mispositioned, <laughs> but, uh, uh, funding wise, it, it never stops is, is a big lesson. Um, culture is something you can't change overnight. Mm-hmm. You, you, you really have to understand culture and, and, and doing business in a foreign market. Um, it, it's interesting when I, I saw brands, um, cause culture applies the other way too. brands would, you know, sign with distributors in Brazil and the distributors, they didn't know the culture of the brands. They didn't know the DNA, the blood, sweat, and tears that went to build that brand. They just know it's American brand. It's a good logo. They can make a lot of money off of it. Mm -hmm. So sometimes the brand ends up in places it shouldn't unbeknownst to the brand back in the States. Um, and one of the things I learned talking to some, some Nike execs in Brazil was that if you notice the people who run Nike, uh, in, in Adidas and other brands in the bigger brands who've gone through this, you know, the people who run them usually aren't local Mm -hmm. and they, it's, it's like this in a lot of countries. And, um, it's, uh, it's easier to learn a language and to learn culture than it is to learn the DNA and the blood, sweat and tears that go into what built the business initially. And so, you know, if you take a, a page from, from those brands or even, you know, most international MBA courses I'll teach, you know, you're better to send one of your, one of your own Mm -hmm. inner circle to those markets to build those markets rather than to hire somebody locally to run Mm -hmm. the whole thing. Uh, I think that applies not, not just to Brazil, but to most international markets. And so that was a huge lesson because we're in the drop, we're looking to launch into, you know, global markets now and, and uh, you know, those lessons really come into play and like, who do we want to send to Europe or 
back to Brazil or, you know, to, to India or wherever we, uh, we, wherever we go. So that was a incredibly valuable lesson for nice. sure. A um, couple others on the entrepreneurial side, health. I really let my health go to shit when I was in Brazil. I mean, uh, drank, I discovered espressos and <laughs> way too many espressos. That's easy to do in Brazil. Yeah. And Coca-Cola, like the original stuff in the glass bottle with all the sugar, you know, the, the original, I mean, that combined and, you know, working 15 hours a day, seven days a week and um, probably the heaviest I've ever been, you know, out of shape just, and then, you know, the caffeine, you can't sleep and then you don't sure. sleep well. And then, you, you know, you don't, you can't work at your, your peak performance the next day. And it's just, it's, that was a good lesson that, uh, yeah. that I learned huge yeah. one. That's big. Yeah. Um, is there, is there a point, have you reached it with the drop where, um, you know, where things get easier? I know it's, you would think, <laughs> you know, I think it, we, we do think that I think it's kind of more of a, you know, okay, when we get to this, these numbers, you know, yeah. things will get easier. And then you get to those numbers is like, well, we got to get to these numbers and then we got to go to these countries and it's, it doesn't stop. I mean, I, I'd prefer it that way. Yeah. I mean, I, I, um, I've seen companies get too comfortable, all types of companies. Sure. And then and when you do that, competition blows you by or the, the yeah, maybe if it's, get, if it's getting too easy, maybe you have a problem. Right. It's time to get out. Mm. One of one of the co-founders of Backcountry had this uh, had this uh, matrix, <laughs> and it was uh, I, I won't go through it all, but it was like you can be uh, consciously competent on one end, all the way to unconsciously incompetent on the other end, and sure. there's multiple variations in between. It's like, and when you become consciously competent, then you know you need to move on. Mm-hmm. whether you're in another role in the company or, right. you know, different um, challenge. So, yeah, it, it's, yeah. uh, it, it, he was a piece of work. He passed away a year ago and he was uh, a really unique individual, John Brzee. Um, yeah. Yeah. Nice. So I know you mentioned Jeff Staple. Uh, I'm a big fan of his. We had a chance to work together on some scion stuff back in the day. Oh, um, nice. And he's my neighbor. I see him around the neighborhood sometimes. <laughs> you see? Uh, I think he might've moved now, but, uh, he seems to go back and forth from yeah. coast to coast. I um, saw him in New York a few weeks ago. Yeah, but you know, I think he's a great, you know, what what he's brought to to streetwear, you know, I think is amazing in terms of not only his brand and the work he does, but just his leadership and you yep. know, sharing knowledge and all that. So I'm curious, I know you added him as an advisor. Um uh what is what does having someone like that do? For you, for the, for the business, like what, what does that add to the equation? Yeah, a, a couple, and we put him on the board, oh, not cool. just an advisor, but he's, he's on the board of directors. Uh, and uh, I think Jeff, a couple of, does, I mean, brings a lot. One, he brings credibility, right? Um, he gets pitched companies every day, sure. all week, mm-hmm. every week. Um, so for him to want to be a part of this is, is huge. And then on the public facing side, I think brands that, you know, a lot of brands aren't digitally savvy. You know, they're, most brands are founded by the creative person, right. um, not, not the business person, you know, nine, 9.9 times out of 10. And so, you know, as they're building their brand and fulfilling their vision, you know, you come at them with a marketplace and we can help them and you throw numbers and technology and whatever. And um, sometimes it's overwhelming. You see Jeff's involved and it's, it's a little more palatable without, 
maybe as as much looking under the hood, I guess. Um, uh, so credibility wise, for sure, um, I, I think for us as we feel a huge challenge is, is not having that storytelling coming from the brands, at least in 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 physical form or product form or content form, you know, not having videos or not having blog posts or not having uh, imagery and photo shoots, even pre-pandemic. Um, that's been uh, a point of frustration for us because, you know, I, I, I'd, I'd prefer the drops homepage to look like a media site mm. where we're telling stories and those up the stories are updating during the day because, mm-hmm. you know, we have 50, 70 plus products a day coming into the drop through all of our, our syncs with the brands. And so we have a lot of stories to tell. And if the brands aren't creating content around their own stories, um, there's nothing to share with us. So we're at a point now we want to start creating content in various formats for various channels. And Jeff, you know, I, I think he, uh, him and, and his agency read art department is, um, you know, masters at, at storytelling and brand building and, um, production of different uh, types of formats or uh, mm-hmm. different types of content. Um, and so that's a big one I, that, that he'll, he'll guide us on. Um, uh, and, and you'll see some of that coming very soon. Nice. Um, you know, you talked a little bit about the, uh, you know, I like, I think we like to have this idea. We can set a vision and a plan and, and go at it. And I think, you know, you talked about sort of the reality is that, um, a lot of success is maybe built more about adapting to things as they're changing real time. Um, and, I'm, and you know, I think it's a balance between those two things, right? Having the vision, but also being, being willing to change. Um, and so, you know, in this context of 2020, that has uh, upended everyone's plans um, in different ways, good and bad. So what do you, what are you looking forward to? What is, you know, if you look at the next year or so uh, with the drop, what, you know, what are you seeing? What are you, what are you excited about? Uh, you know, excited to see the economy come back to normal on a, on a global scale. I think there's, we probably don't see it enough in the media, but there's uh, big markets, big foreign markets um, that pose opportunity for growth, not just for us, but other, you know, businesses in the U S yeah. those markets are, are, suffering even more um and so uh love to see the economy come back i think that's an obvious one um for the drop we want to go global you know we have 300 brands today um we have a platform that we built where we literally can turn on you know the drop uk tomorrow and i can turn on 300 brands in pounds in local payment processing options and completely i could take brands that you know, uh, aren't in global markets to global markets with a click. Um, we've built it in such a way to to do that. And then vice versa. We can bring on, you know, uh, using U- the UK as an example, we can bring on, you know, young British brands that, uh, you know, maybe don't have a site localized for the US and dollars or, you know, whatever. Um, and we can plug them into the drop UK and then flip a switch and put them live you know, in, in the U S mm-hmm. you know, currency mm-hmm. converted and FX updated multiple times a day. And so we built all this already. So we're ready to go. Nice. Uh, we're ready to, we're ready to go global. We were going to launch in the UK in April and we pushed it off, um, because of our platform shift and also mm-hmm. kind of COVID also, but more so from the platform shift perspective, but, um, it's, uh, global is the big one. 
global is the big one. And, you know, uh, on the, on the pet passion side, you know, as even though everybody's working remote, including us and for who knows how long, you know, I, I do want to create uh, a destination in Vegas, you know, that is an office, mm. uh, you know, possibly having some sort of skate park within it, uh, oh, slash great. event center, kind of, you know, something more for the community. Um, obviously we can use it to also create content, mm-hmm. um, going back to content production and that strategy. But I do, I would love to create, you know, um, a very creative, uh, friendly environment in Vegas and, um, and eventually get involved with some local charities oh, or nice. start a, a local charity. We haven't really decided on that yet, but really focus on, um, funding the next generation of, of entrepreneurs, whether it's fashion or music or technology, sure. um, anything that's just related to our world and creative. We, we want to be a part of that because it's all about the give back, you know, yeah. we all got help along the way. And so you gotta, you gotta pay it forward. But, uh, I, I I'm very bullish on Vegas where we're based and, um, feel like that's a really up and coming city, uh, with a, a lot more to offer than just the, uh, you know, the casino and gaming side of, sure, sure. of the city. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Well, I got to get to a little lightning round before I let you uh, get back to work. Okay. Um, so what's your favorite city to travel to? Oof. Oh man. I've been to many and, uh, I, I have to say Mazatlan, Mexico. Really? Nice. Personal favorite. Yeah. Spent a lot of time there. A lot of friends, the culture, the local side of it is, mm-hmm you know, is, is pretty amazing. That's cool. I've not explored Mexico enough. I'll show you. I'll show you Mazatlan. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. What's <laughs> the last great book you read? Uh, Cosmic Banditos by A.C. Weisbecker. Wow. Cool title. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. He had to label it as fiction not to indict himself. He okay. was a bit of a drug runner in the 70s between uh, Central America and, and the U.S. And, oh, wow. uh, um, but the book is really about, uh, <laughs> I mean, quick bit. He, 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 they end up robbing a family at, uh, at an airport in Central America. I can't remember which one off the top of my head. Um, but they, it, was the, it was the luggage of, um, of a professor at like Cal Berkeley or, or a Stanford physics professor. And there was a book on... Um, on uh, on physics and quantum physics and of course he's drinking uh mezcal with mushrooms in it and you know reading these quantum physics books and relating how atoms and particles and everything you know interact with each other and how it relates it back to life and Mm. yeah it's a it's pretty interesting that's what but again label that's fiction to to not indict himself on, on many of those things i like it um, what movie do you think you've seen the most in your life? Oh man, not by choice, but probably dazed and confused. Okay. Uh, my roommate in college, you know, we went out quite a bit and let's say four nights a week that movie was on. <laughs> yeah, that was Pulp Fiction is probably a close second though. Oh, I spent a whole summer nice. watching that one repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I mean, the, the answer to that question is always something like that. It's always like, you know, some movie that, you know, you stumble on or someone else forces it on you over and over. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. Who's somebody <laughs> you haven't met that has taught you the most? 
somebody I haven't met that taught me the most, that teaches me the most. Um, hmm. That's a good question. I think, you know, it's a tough one. You know, I, I read a lot around Tony Shea um, at Zappos. Um, you know, read his books and, and uh, became friends with some of his common friends, never met Tony in person, yeah. um, traded some emails, but uh, uh, you know, got to know some of his, his community in downtown Vegas in, in kind of the, uh, the Airstream compound yeah. uh, where, where he lives. And uh, I don't know, just kind of learning more about him through, through friends, through people in addition to books just on business philosophy and, mm-hmm. and employee philosophy and, and, you know, the customer happiness and that, but learning about him locally in Vegas and what he's invested in that probably most people don't realize and building yeah. things for the, for the community. Yeah. Um, pretty amazing. You know, I look at that cause he, you know, as a, as an entrepreneur, you, you have occasional thoughts like, wow, if I build this and sell it for a lot of money someday, what do I do? Sure. You know, and I, yeah. and I think, you know, Tony's already kind of been there <laughs> and, uh, and seeing what, what he's done, um, publicly. Yeah. You know, where a lot, I think a lot of people become more of a recluse once they have a good bit of change in their pocket. Um, but to see what he's done publicly for the Las Vegas local community. Uh, yeah. 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 It's pretty amazing. No, that's great. He's actually on my list too. Although I, I met him briefly, but um, he's uh, here in Park City. I'm in Park City at the moment. Oh, he's, really? He's, he, yeah, he's moved up here. Oh, wow! He, uh, I didn't know. Well, I left Vegas. Has a place up here. Has a yeah. place up here now. He just retired from Zappos, but uh, yeah, he's. I know he goes back and forth, and and he's uh, spending more time up here. So they had a great thing. You know, I read the book uh, "Delivering Happiness." Loved yeah. it, yeah. and then they had launched this coaching program. Um, that they were, they were like, you know, we figured out how to, you know, how to our approach to building a business. And we're happy to share that with people. It was pretty affordable. And it was actually sort of my introduction to coaching. So I did their program for about a year. And then I spun off with one of their coaches privately worked with her for about five years and was a life changer for me personally, wow. and professionally. And really? um, yeah, so I'm, I'm a big fan of that answer. And, and, uh, and I thought, you know, the coolest thing about that was like you guys are a shoe store and now you're coaching people on how to run businesses. Right. And, and just the willingness to share, I mean, it was like $500 for the year or something. It was a really, really inexpensive uh, proposition. Right. But that like, we'll just share all this stuff that we've learned and figure it out on our own. And, you know, I know in the, in the tech world and it's popular to talking about like making the world a better place. Right. And, you know, Selling shoes doesn't really do that. Like, let's let's be honest with each other. Um, but opening, you know, your book of knowledge about how you do what you do that that actually does make the world better. And so I thought they, that we was actually did really uh, cool. we did knowledge sharing with them at Backcountry. We we oh, go yeah. down there and, yeah. and and do knowledge sharing, even though we competed maybe in some categories and with some brands. Um, and I was always impressed with that how transparent they were. Um, definitely learnings. To glean yeah for sure ah, that's great okay last question uh if i worked for you what's something i would hear you say over and over storytelling <laughs> <laughs> i'm pretty sure my my team would all say 
what's the story? If we do a, an Instagram post and there's no story being told, I'm like, where's the story? Yeah. Where's the story? Yeah. Great. It's, just, it's, just, it's all about the story. Yeah. Uh, it's awesome, man. Well, dude, this is so much fun, man. I've always enjoyed our conversations uh, privately and you didn't disappoint on the mic. Uh, <laughs> very cool. So, you right know, I definitely on, want to encourage everyone to check out the drop, shop the drop, follow the drop. Um, drop.com drop <laughs> nice. yeah. as, uh, as some have, have tried to boost, uh, kind of the momentum we've, we built around the drop others, uh, trying to build, uh, some businesses adjacent to that. Yeah, so of course, not surprised. Drop.com flattered. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's <laughs> the name of the game, right? Dude. Well, yeah. thank you, man. I hope you'll, uh, you'll come back and share more of the story as the years go on. And, uh, really appreciate absolutely. it. Josh, I appreciate it, man. Take yeah, care. Yeah, that was Matt Falsinelli of thedrop.com on Rebel Radio. I hope you enjoyed it. I know I did. Leave us a comment. Uh, hit us on Twitter at Rebel Radio Net. Facebook, same thing. You can watch videos of a lot of our episodes on our YouTube channel at Rebel Radio Net. Most importantly, come back next week for more Rebel Radio. Peace.